Initiating startup sequence. Ladies and gentlemen, Martian ambassador is going to say a few words. Citizens of the universe. Welcome to Other Planes, the Afrofuturist and Speculative Cultures podcast. Pleased to have none other than Minister Faust, novelist, teacher, writer, journalist, playwright, and poet. Minister Faust is known for his Afrofuturist, surrealist, and magical realist novels, The Coyote Kings, from the notebooks of Dr. Brain, aka Shrinking the Heroes, The Alchemists of Kush, and the War and Mirror series. He's also an author of video games, including Mass Effect 2, DLC, Gift of the Yeti, and Dark Spore. He writes for stage and sketch comedy, print journalism, and is a broadcaster of Afri-centric radio. In this extended conversation with Minister Faust, we discuss, among other things, the upcoming sequel to his novel, The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which will be serialized and available through his Patreon at ministerfaust.com. The ins and outs of independent publishing, how to balance making money in the art world with focusing upon the work and how to promote it, what Edmonton is really like, the state of Canlit, and a little bit of dabbling into Kemeti philosophy and symbolism. Without further ado, here is Minister Faust. All right, so I am here with Minister Faust from Edmonton, the acclaimed black science fiction author, if I may say so, if that is the correct term. <laughs> Fill me in here. How can I describe you, Minister um, Faust? Sure. Well, author is entirely appropriate, and uh, if you want an ethnic designator, you could say Kenyan-Canadian. Kenyan-Canadian. Um, and more than just an author as well, you are a broadcaster. You've been involved with uh, campus and community radio for many years. I first heard about you when I was at CITR Radio 101.9 FM back in the 90s. How, how mm. long have you been involved with um, community broadcasting, radio, and science fiction and comics? Wow. Well, I mean, to take the first one, um, I got involved with community radio back in 1989. So that's going back now uh, just shy of 30 years. And um, I got into comics when I was five, even before I could read. So I guess that that takes me back about 44 years. So I've always and that, you know, that associated with that, I probably was watching Star Trek before that, the original series. So I guess I've always known and been part of science fiction in one way or another for, uh, you know, most of my aware life. 
That's incredible. I have read several of your books now. I think I might have missed mm. one or two. I'm starting to realize. Okay. But I have on my shelf right behind me here, Shrinking the Heroes, mm. uh, which I believe was retitled. That's right. Yeah, the original title for which it won the uh, the Kindred Award was uh, From the Notebooks of Dr. Brain. Uh, that was never my, my... That was the editor's choice for that title. And uh, But in fairness, I didn't come up with the title Shrinking the Heroes until later. I, I After I got it, I thought, why didn't I come up with that first? So, because it's for people who don't know the book, it's a play on words uh, since the book involves psychology. It's an amazing book, actually. It's kind of like if you took the Avengers and put them into psychotherapy and then had them all have mm-hmm. to deal with a very uncomfortable issue of race. <laughs> for them i mean it like blew my mind it was actually the first book that that i read from you and since then i've picked up the uh mirror series um i mean i have a way to describe it but describe for our audience briefly what's happening with the mirror series sure warren mirror so it is a trilogy the final volume will be out either late this year or or early next year and uh the um i the way i Describe it as it's Star Wars meets the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, it's it's a bit of space opera. I always felt that it kind of opened up uh, a bit like Afro Samurai meets a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, there's absolutely <laughs> Hitchhiker's. The Hitchhiker's part was very self-conscious. Um, there is a device, uh, unlike uh, it forms the similar role to the Babelfish. So in this case, it's called the Akmek. Uh, which here's a little scoop. Um, that's that name from an alien language called Sauladu is simply um, it's a portmanteau of um, language acquisition mechanism. So, uh, uh, but yeah. So and and the idea of you know I, I, it's been a long time, decades since I read Hitchhiker's Guide. But what is the name of the um, the alien who's the, the buddy of the main character? Uh, Ford Prefect. Oh, Ford. For, yeah, right. <laughs> or, 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 so. Yeah, so Ford. So I have a character similar to that, who uh, except that you know he has a tougher time with English. So uh, yeah, and uh, you know, it's, uh, so that that's been fun to work on that project, and and I'm glad that it'll be soon uh, wrapped. Very up. stoked that the third uh, uh, issue in the trilogy is uh, finally coming out. <laughs> I've been I've been waiting for that. Um, uh, and then uh, you know what? I'm sitting here without the titles in front of me, which is a silly no mistake. Problem. Well, there's. There's the Coyote There's Kings. There's Coyote Kings. And the Alchemist the of Kush. The Alchemist of Kush is, is in my perspective, uh, just one of the most brilliant science fiction books I've read in a long time. I mean, I wouldn't call it science fiction. Oh, How do we describe you. this book? Well, it's, it's fantasy and uh, with, a, with that one also could call social, I mean, uh, magical realism. Although I tend to think magical realism is what people who think they're too good for fantasy call fantasy. <laughs> yes, there is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it parallels a kind of mythological take on Kemet, uh, ancient Egypt, and mm-hmm. the uh, founding myths of, of Kemet, and then runs a parallel narrative uh, with uh, uh, social activists or in uh, Edmonton in the uh, right, Somali yeah. community if memory serves me correct that's yeah. right Somali Canadians and to an extent Sudanese South Sudanese right. Canadians that book I can't wait to teach it <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm well, like waiting you. for the right opportunity but yeah 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 uh, all right describe to us Coyote Kings because what we're here to talk about is you're working on the sequel to Coyote Kings Right. Okay. So the original Coyote Kings, um, the story is a couple of young men in, in Edmonton, 1995. Uh, and when I first generated the story, it was 1995. And the kind of subgenre of science fiction in which fans, you know, people who are science fiction fans are in the book, 
Um, that was not very widely developed at that time. Um, the movie Free Enterprise had already come out, so that wasn't a science fiction story, but you got to see fans represented realistically, unlike, I would say, the, um, the Big Bang Theory, which is much more of a non-fans caricature of what fans look like. Mm. And so uh, these are two young, you know, they're Generation X, African-Canadians, you know, very smart guys who are stuck in McJobs. And they meet a mysterious, remarkable, fascinating uh, Ethiopian woman who introduces them to an extremely fascinating secret, and that is that magic is real. But of course, if magic were real, that would place you in immediate danger. And so the, the, book, is, the book is about these two young men who are best friends um, having to explore an ancient mystery while they lock horns with a... Uh, uh, a very dangerous drug gang in Edmonton called the Fanboys, uh, who peddle a mind-altering substance called Cream, and uh, some old rivals from high school and university who used formerly good friends and now bitter enemies, uh, the Wolves, who are the their family name is the Meanies. So, um, and they all of them are after ultimately the same thing, and it all puts them and the human race in peril. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's the Coyote Kings, and um, obviously, uh, I think it's fair to say that the protagonists survive, which is why there is a sequel. And uh, people had been asking me for a very long time. In fact, even before the book was published, I had some interest from my agent at the time and my uh, the publisher in a sequel. And at that time, I was really against sequels in books. And then, you know, I realized, why am I being so snobbish about this? I adore serialized television. So why should I be against serialized books? And then once I realized, once I came to that conclusion, I thought, well, yeah, now this opens up so many possibilities. And I love the 1990s. Uh, so the book starts two years after the end of Coyote Kings. It takes place in, in 1997. Huh. And uh, our main characters are called, they, they get a call. They get a call from... Uh, some uh, women they knew from university, and it turns out that they they used to take classes um, from a very influential uh, ecology professor. It was a deep ecology professor, and so this this man brought in all kinds of fascinating stuff about Gaia and um, fungal intelligence, and um, you know the saving the human race from ecological destruction. And anyway, this, this professor has moved up north in Alberta to the tar sands and has founded a, a type of community there where he's raised the ire of local biker gangs, the RCMP, oil companies, and he's been murdered. Oh, no. So the, yeah, so the Coyote Kings get uh, called up to uh, help solve uh, who has killed their favorite professor this is terrible i'm sorry to hear the professor of deep, <laughs> deep ecology has has been murdered i'm teaching deep ecology on starting next week <laughs> this doesn't bode well for me <laughs> so this is uh, a murder case with a bit of a uh, a twist to it i am sure yes uh, there'll be a bunch of twists and i, I hope they'll be the kind of mind-blowing twist that when, as people go through the book they will they will uh sometimes want to throw the book across the room <laughs> and say what and that because you know that, that doesn't have to be a bad thing sometimes you should be astonished and horrified and so so I, I'm, I'm very excited i've been uh you know i had ideas about a sequel nothing really gelled and i i learned a long time ago that when you're trying to form a story a long form story 
if it doesn't seem to be working, it's because you're not passionate about the contents. And so the best thing to do is dust off your old notebooks or, or click open your old files for stories that you abandoned. And usually the, what is there is that it's half of a good idea or it's a quarter of a good idea. So you Frankenstein them or in a more gentle, loving way, you set them up on a date and you see if they will make beautiful magic together. So that's what I did. I took some old stories that I didn't think I was going to be able to work on. And I realized like, oh, no, this is the perfect story for the Coyote Kings. And, and I already had these characters that I cared about. And I thought, this is it. I mean, that's an excellent way to go about the creative process. I mean, like reusing not reusing material, but just like realizing that you've already created a lot of material sometimes and you just need to like frame it. Um, yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking about your approach here with like serialization. I mean, that's how Charles Dickens wrote all of his novels, yeah. right? I mean, Absolutely. they were originally published in period, you know, uh, periodicals and like a magazine format, basically. Most people don't realize this today. And then, you know, later they were put together into novels, which is why, they were why they're so bloody like long. Without <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, they were long, and, and it made sense for an economic reason. It was like, they were like TV shows. Yeah. You wanted to string the audience along and, and sell more copies of newspapers. It, it makes total sense. And people love it. And also, we like a little bit of a, um, the building of anticipation. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, there's a big difference between being able to, um, you know, I, I know that I can't remember the term for it, but when you engorge yourself on all eight episodes on Netflix at once, what's that called? When people, <laughs> binge uh, watching. Like, so, you know, the thing about binging is that it's very easy to puke afterwards. And so when you watch a whole bunch of a series immediately, I think that we, my impression is that we simply don't retain our love for it the way we used to when a show was with us over the course of five or seven more years because we've had all those life changes ourselves. Whereas if you go through like say five seasons of a show over the course of a week, sure, you've fallen passionately in love for a week, but then it's gone. And so I think that those shows kind of drop out of our uh, conversations very quickly. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the show. It's the format. I remember once somebody, you know, the book, the first book came out in 2004 and somebody asked, well, why does this take place in uh, 1995? And um, some people, you know, when there's been talk over the years about turning it into a TV series or a movie, the questions were, well, could we update it? And I think, well, what's the point of updating it? It takes place in a specific time. And then if you update that, well, then you're just continually play, playing catch up because mm -hmm. when people watch the show later, they're going to say like, why is this in 2018? It's already 2019. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so things happen in real time. Just let them. Yeah, hopefully with the popularity of shows like Stranger Things uh, that are mm -hmm. set back in the 80s, it allows us to start framing the 90s in such a way that it has a distinct look and like a, and a, and a distinct period. I know a lot of my students out there, my uh, millennial and now younger than millennial students, <laughs> look, you know, they, they fetishize the 90s to like a large degree, you know, <laughs> in, 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 in ways that horrify me. <laughs> but... Uh, are completely understandable because when I was when I was growing up in the 90s, we fetishized the 60s. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's well. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. So, like, what are the things that stand out for them other than cassettes, which is one that drives me bananas? As a longtime <laughs> DJ, I can say there is no good reason to like cassettes. But oh, there's one good one reason to like cassettes. DJ yes. mixes still sound better on cassette because you can overdrive the mix onto analog tape. <laughs> Records well. sound better recorded on a cassette. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I, it is your show, so I'm just going to let that one go. <laughs> but uh, anything else from the 90s that they uh, kind of Google and goggle Here's over? Here's the weird thing. 
Mom Jeans. Yeah, the history uh, square kind of nonsense. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah that, that one, I have to say, all, like th- these, the people who, who really went gaga for irony have killed sweaters. I cannot <laughs> buy a proper, a sweater was a sweater, and now they're called pullovers. <laughs> This is interesting. Somehow this is going to tie into <laughs> Coyote Kings. Actually, tell me about the way in which you went about world building the 90s for you, because this is also a very specific region. This is Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is the provincial capital of the province of Alberta. Uh, for those who aren't from Canada, this is the oil region of Canada. Uh, up in the north, it's a massive, massive province. You have, as you were saying, the tar sands. Uh, where oil is taken out of the ground so much devastating environmental impact um, and continuous conflict with uh, indigenous title and in- indigenous peoples. And Edmonton and Calgary are very interesting and very different cities. Calgary is quite, as we say, multicultural, um, uh, but is also the seat of power for the oil interests and the sort of a staging of conflict between these these two uh, regions, classes, um, also racial and gender divides. And then Edmonton is the seat of political power um, and often kind of gets looked over when you're looking at Alberta. But I mean, I've DJed in Edmonton in the 90s. Uh, You were saying 97. I think 97 was the last time I DJed in Edmonton in the basement of a skyscraper uh, at a rave called Build, which was not very well attended because it was like a diehard like Detroit techno style event um, uh, playing Afrofuturist Detroit techno (laughs) back in the day in Edmonton. Um, but yeah, tell me about Edmonton in the 90s and what that city well, was like. Well, you know, for me, it was easy to world build the 90s because the original screenplay, I mean, I wrote it as a screenplay in 1995. And so then when I turned it into a novel in 2001, and it was published in 2004, uh, you know, in 2001, the memories of 1995 were still very fresh. The Edmonton region now, as we call it back then, we called it E-Town. And the one who gave us that name was a great, was a, the late great DJ, uh, T-E-D-D-Y, Teddy Pemberton. Um, and so he called it E-Town. This is long before people locally started to call it Yeg as a result of Twitter. But, you know, now we're around a million people. Back then it was probably about uh, 750,000, something like that. And the... The city has always been extraordinarily multicultural, multi-religious, a dynamic, absolutely dynamic art sector. It has the second largest uh, fringe festival, which is uh, small theater in the world. The only one bigger is the original one in England. It's got, in English-speaking Canada, the best theater scene, comedy improv scene, uh, for a while the best sketch comedy scene. Uh, and you know, it's, it's an amazing place. Also, it's the natural beauty, uh, is stunning. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. This like river Delta runs through the city with all these green pathways and there's bridges over it. Yeah. 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 It's gorgeous. And, and so it's this, it's an amazing place. It's a great place to be a writer or a visual artist. A lot of, it's a great music scene. It's interesting. You bring up Calgary because the, the relationship between Calgary and Edmonton is like that between, as I understand between Houston and Austin. So we're both, huh. you know, both petro states, um, but in the case of Edmonton and Austin, really vibrant culture and far more in the way of progressive politics. 
So, you know, people who are listening can't see that I'm wearing a red sweater, but that's, you know, that, 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 that I guess that tells you a lot. That's what you need to know. And, and not for the Canadians, the Liberal Party red, but red in the old red flag <laughs> sense. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, Edmonton, is, it's, it's an amazing place. And, I, you know, I, of course, I grew up here. My family goes back to 1939 here. And I just loved the idea back then of, uh, bringing in the kind of science fiction and fantasy fans that I knew and I had always known that were not the stereotype of the guy who has tape wound around his glasses and uh, gets beaten up. I mean, that's sort of like really dumb American movie and TV cliches. That wasn't my experience of being a fan ever. There's only, in, really, in my entire life, there was only a couple of people, and it might literally be two, whoever tried to make some stupid joke because I was a fan. And uh, so uh, I just want to write about people like that and then, you know, bring in this actual fantasy adventure that also at times delves into horror. And, and then, the, you know, another element of it was that uh, I'm a Kenyan Canadian. This is an amazing city full of lots of Somali Canadians, South Sudanese, uh, Nigerians, Ghanaians, South Africans and more. And that was in terms of, you know, this might not make as much sense to your American listeners, but to... It, it, what we call Canlit, Canadian literature. Um, <laughs> yes, Canlit. Uh, Canlit is, um, you know, up until recently, it was um, overwhelmingly uh, Euro-Canadian, but it was even not just Euro-Canadian because, you know, where I live in Alberta, it's a very Ukrainian place. It's a very German place. But none of the stories I ever took in school featured Ukrainian or German Canadians. I mean, how is that? That's, that's mm. nuts, you know? So what we ended up getting was this weird... Eastern Canadian, by which I mean Ontarian perspective on what the prairies was supposed to be. There was this weird movement in the development of Canadian literature where people were trying to, they were forcing forcing a concept of Canlet on the country, and they concluded that something about the the eternal loneliness of the prairies that was somehow quintessentially Canadian. And you know, there, sh- <laughs> there should be a wolf in there somewhere, and a, and a lonely blonde boy, you know wandering through the wheat fields. It's like, that has nothing to do with my life or the life of any kid that I ever grew up with in the city. And that's one mm-hmm. reason we didn't want, we had no interest in Canlit because we were given this utterly boring, depressing fiction. Like, and when I say fiction, what I mean is an artifice that didn't represent our lives. So I was one of the people who was writing stories set in the city, in a multicultural contemporary metropolis that brought in uh, African Canadian, a range of African Canadian cultures, hip hop music, uh, you know, f- fan culture. So I'm sorry, that's a very lengthy answer, but that is the world building was all I had to do was represent the real world that was in front of me, and that's why these people who are so against diversity are really just wanting to lie about what the world looks like. They actually want to create a fictional version that wipes out everybody who isn't like them, including, of course, wiping out all. Um, uh, queer people, because the, you know they also don't mm-hmm. get to appear in these stories. That's actually really interesting. You you bring this up because uh, when I was an undergraduate in the '90s, that was uh, uh, a time. I mean, I'm sure this started much earlier in in the '80s, but the uh, question of challenging the Canadian canon and and Canlet was at the forefront of uh, uh, English studies at UBC at the time. So there were a number of books coming out um, uh, that were doing precisely this. Um, uh, Nala Hopkinson's uh, first book came out. Brown Girl in the uh, Ring. Brown Girl in the Ring, like 97, 98. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, there were a number of texts, and this was a, a question, but I mean, I remember having to go through the quote-unquote Canadian canon of the time. A lot of Susanna Moody, a lot of... Uh, actually, we didn't even read that much Farley Mowat. 
uh, come to think of it. Um, but yeah, it was mainly Eastern Canadian focused and all white set- settler narratives. Yeah. The rest of Canada was mostly forgotten. Indigenous literature was uh, not even touched upon. Over the past 25 years, it's been that long now. This is, yeah, this has changed. This has changed. And so have the narratives in, in Canada around uh, us, us, quote unquote, us as a nation. I mean, we've gone through truth and reconciliation process. Um, and there's been much more open discussion about the uh, tensions and class issues and endemic uh, poverty amongst racialized communities. Um, mainly pertaining to places like Toronto, but I mean, this is an ongoing discussion, which is which is much more present mm. in the national consciousness than than it was twenty years ago. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been it's been great to see those changes, and a lot of people have been responsible, uh, uh, including academics such as yourself, journalists. Uh, now, of course, through the internet, bloggers and podcasters, and 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 obviously the writers producing the work, and an important feature that probably hasn't, at least to my knowledge, you could you could correct me on this, uh, that probably hasn't had as much an impact inside the academy is uh, independently published fiction. Um, so mm-hmm. now it's possible for people who you know publishers wouldn't wouldn't take wouldn't gamble on their work, and now they can reach uh, people directly. So I think that as that bias against independent publishing declines, we are going to see more and more stories of a huge range. And by the way, that would also include an awful lot of white male voices that we never got because they were about, for instance, being a Ukrainian in Alberta, or they were about being a recent Serbian immigrant. So there's all these, when people (laughs) want to attack you know, and from a white supremacist perspective, attack diversity, they forget, like, no, no, most of those white uh, cultural experiences, those were wiped out. And if you were a white man who mm-hmm. was blue collar, those were also wiped out. So, yeah. you know, attack yeah. diversity at your own peril. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually fantastic that you bring up independent publishing, because this probably is a great, a great moment to ask how we can follow... <laughs> Coyote Kings and get on board with the uh, serial delivery of chapters. I know I'm excited to begin reading it, and I believe you're setting up a subscription service yes, for this. It's going to be. Um, uh, I've already been supporting my podcast MF Galaxy using Patreon, and so for people who are not familiar with Patreon, it's like Kickstarter except that you 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 know you pay a small amount uh, monthly or per unit that's put out. And so what I'll be doing is uh, the book will probably clock in at about 20 chapters. And so the entry level to get access to each chapter, uh, which should come out about once a week, is a, is a buck. Because people, I think, are okay with spending 20 bucks on a book of a reasonable enough mm-hmm. length. And then if you spend a little bit more, then you get access to, uh, I'll do some videos that, you know, me talking about the process. And for, for people who are writers or they'd like to be writers, that's often quite helpful. And also, I do a lot of uh, uh, art as, a, I mean, just myself, I do art, but also I do art as part of my work of generating stories. So people will get, act, there'll be um, production art. Uh, you know, one of the characters named Yee Hat, and he developed a type of high-tech body armor. So you know, I'm going to be able to show people what that actually looks like. Um, uh, oh, very cool! Yeah, and I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll have photography of Edmonton, and the part of the book takes place in Fort McMurray, so there'll be stuff from there. Uh, I'm almost certainly going to do some um, some mock movie posters because the tagline for the book is uh, "In the Tar Sands, uh, the deadliest toxin is man." 
And that is a <laughs> that's a reference to the movie poster for The Thing, because there are some aspects from John yes. Carpenter's The Thing that go here. Otherwise, I wouldn't use the gendered expression. Oh, very cool. The gendered expression, man, but it, because I'm riffing specifically on that. And then for people who are going to pay, you know, even a little bit more if they want to, there'll be stuff like ask the author anything, and I'll do those sessions from time to time. And and also, as I get feedback from people, the book is going to change. When I looked at the chat window with Minister Faust, I had originally contacted you back in 2010. Right. <laughs> when I was writing my dissertation. And we had set up a time. We were going to do an interview then, and then it fell through. And, and, and eight years later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the time is obviously right now, and that's the key. The time is right now. <laughs> <laughs> the time is right now, indeed. And I'm very much looking forward to this uh, serial publication of the Patreon. Uh, what is the link, sir? Go to my website, ministerfaust.com. The link's not up yet. It's going to be on Patreon. Yeah, but ministerfaust.com will get you there. Exactly. And your podcast is MF Galaxy, which is all over the podcast universe. Just search for it. <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah. And and for those who, who haven't subscribed yet to Minister Faust's podcast, it is incredible. He's talked to more people anywhere about everything, uh, everything from filmmakers to authors to artists. Um, Afrofuturists, but just everything and anything in the independent, underground, uh, incredibly diverse uh, global art scene at this point. I mean, I've been trying to catch up on your podcasts. <laughs> Uh, and there's well, a lot, often a lot of amazing practical information about art making, art creating uh, for indie audiences, especially. So tune into MF Galaxy if you have not already. Thanks for the kind words about that, and, and, and also for noting that, yeah, it's definitely about a podcast. Uh, created with the intent of helping people advance as artists. And that means developing their craft and learning how to make money. Artists are, are I think some people, they like, oh, no, I don't want to sully myself and ruin my soul. So look, if, if you don't make money, then by definition, you are not a professional. A professional mm -hmm. means you make money for the work. Mm -hmm. So if you if you don't want to do it just for the love, which is what the word amateur means, and you should love it, but if you need to get paid, then you need to talk with other artists and figure out how they're doing it. It's it's absolutely important to find ways to make a living in a society which continuously exploits the narratives of marginalized peoples as well. I was just thinking about something else too. I was I was reading an interview with Alejandro Jodorowsky. Mm. Um, filmmaker, performance artist, and uh, uh, I don't know what he's doing these days. It's like magic psychotherapy. <laughs> and he was talking about, he always loved promoting his films. And he said he put as much time into promotion as he did into filming and post-production. And that struck me because what I've been doing, I've been doing arts of various kinds for many years. I'm a turntablist. I'm a media artist. I do this podcast, but I've never put much time into, into promotion. I have that almost can, a quintessential Canadian uh, <laughs> reserve of not promoting. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so what you're doing in, in, in the sense of uh, waking up artists to promoting their own work and speaking about it is very important. Um, and it's especially important if you, if you come from what I think is almost an ideological premise of, Oh, keep it underground. Don't promote it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what, that that might have worked in the 80s and 90s as kind of an elusive allure. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and today I also agree, yes, there's no point in like signal boosting to the point where you're just like constantly spamming with like, you know, automated Twitter accounts. Yes. Uh, but being real about your promotion and 
talking with real people about it is an absolute must because it it engenders support and community and actually creates the kind of community of art and artists and social change that we want to see in the world you know So yeah, I do like that older that older commitment uh, to making something lasting. You know, um, the, you know the advice from, and I, I can't remember if it's uh, the uh, the instructions of Patahotep, but it goes back, you know, like four thousand some years. Is to be a scribe, and there's all kinds of wonderful advice in there. You just Google the words "be a scribe" and mm. Egyptian wisdom literature, you'll find it. And a lot of it's pretty snobby. It's basically like, hey. Be a writer because you don't want to be carrying all those bricks and boards and be a writer because that's better than being a blank, blank, blank. But a lot of it is really about saying that the life of writing is going to uh, offer you value that you can't get any other way. Mm -hmm. You know, and I work in other fields and other fields that I have really loved. But, um, yeah, writing, especially when you get to engage with other people. And I would include like what you and I are doing right now, which is conversing. And, of course, I'm also an interviewer. Getting to hear other people, not writing just your own opinion pieces, which can be very, very narcissistic, but talking with other people, getting their perspectives and learning from them, being open. When I, when I interview people, I have to shut up. That's my job is to ask a question and then let them do the talking. And I get more out of that because I'm not trying to think of what's my next thing to say. Although as an interviewer right now, I have to think of the next thing to say. That's <laughs> I, re I really like the idea of be a scribe. I mean, there's a we'll kind of end with that, I think. Um, but I mean, there's a deeper mystical reading there too. Of course, the Egyptian culture of writing and hieroglyphs, um, uh, the idea of inscription um, uh, it pertains to Thoth, to Hudi, yes. the god mm -hmm. of writing and death. Um, who I can't show your listeners, but is tattooed on my arm. Um, hmm. Thoth as the god of writing and death. This is not death in the negative sense. This is death in the sense of uh, transformation and transcendence to the next level. Resurrection. And resurrection, rebirth. Um, and writing is one of the pathways. And I think in Egyptian culture, it's probably one of the most profound pathways of doing so. And not just writing in the sense of writing things down, but developing forms of communication and symbolic ritual um, that that would carry forth meaning beyond the death of your body on this on this plane um, and of if you know the history of Western philosophy you you know that Socrates infamously argued against writing he argues against mm -hmm. the Egyptian position denigrates writing as a secondary art um, to uh, the imminence of speech and uh, uh, that is, in in a sense, also a, a interestingly racialized narrative. Um, so if you study <laughs> study philosophy and the history of Western philosophy, the the rebirth of writing, the recognition that writing and the mark is not secondary, but is one of I think the primary forms of of um, communication, in like the broadest sense, but also of the means of of uh, transformation, self self transformation through techne, through artistry. So that is me riffing off on something here. But <laughs> be a, be a scribe, and what that means in your life. You don't have to literally become a writer. What yeah. that means is write your own life story, right? Yeah. Be, become a writer of your own narratives. Take control of your own myths. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Well said. I, I, I absolutely agree. It's interesting, you know, uh, what you were saying a moment ago about Socrates. I hadn't been aware that he had attacked writing as an Egyptian position because the early the early Greek philosophers, of course, were influenced by the most uh, powerful so. and long-lasting civilization of the region, which was, of course, an African civilization of yeah. Egypt, yeah. Kemet. Kemet. And so the you know many people have, have said that there was a whole body of Egyptian wisdom that was passed on exclusively orally, and that that has been lost, and that much of the Egyptian literary tradition of religious writings was actually symbolic. It was philosophical. It was metaphysical uh, in the in the Greek sense of the word metaphysics, that it was an exploration of the, you know, the nature of reality and thought. And so, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about this, uh, this potential uh, Socratic uh, rejection of Egypt, if, if that's in fact the case, because the Egyptian position was that both of these things matter, that the spoken word, and in fact, in many Egyptian origin stories of the universe, it's, it's the god Atum who speaks the words of creation that bring reality, which later becomes a feature of, of Hellenized Christianity as in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Logos. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. the, the creative utterance is, is divinity itself. Vision. All right, Minister Faust, thank you so much for such a wide-ranging and amazing conversation here on Other Planes. And uh, I look forward to having you back, actually. Hey, I'd, and, I'd, I'd uh, love to Catching up on, with you once again. Love to come yeah. on anytime. It's really great to, to talk with you and uh, great questions and, and love, lovely range of, of conversational topics. Excellent. Thank you for tuning in to Other Planes. And a big thanks to our host, creativedisturbance.org, through MIT's Leonardo Arts Organization for keeping us going tune in next time for a series of interviews from the black speculative arts movement uh, toronto first edition including audio from the opening ceremony uh, panels with stacy robinson and more peace <laughs>